You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Well, I'm so pleased to be with you today and uh, look forward to getting to know a few of you a little more as we journey together over the coming weeks. Uh, Will you join me as I pray? Lord, your Holy Spirit caused the words that we've just read to be remembered and written. We pray that by the same Spirit today, you would be at work, penetrating our thoughts and hearts, renewing our lives, that we might become more and more what you want us to be. Reformed, reshaped, remodelled after the image of your son Jesus. And Lord, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I like a good riddle, whether it's a bit of a classic like in marbled halls as white as milk, lined with the skin as soft as silk, Within a fountain crystal clear, a golden apple doth appear. No doors there are to this stronghold, yet thieves break in and steal the gold. Most of you will probably know that that's a riddle about an egg. Or this one, I think the Red Door Church kind of prompted me to think about this one. But uh, this is actually called the Green Glass Door World. And in that land, there are riddles but no answers, sheets but no blankets, books but no words. Can you name something that belongs in the land of the green glass door? Oh, I think I've stumped you all. (laughs) So basically... The land of the green glass door is a land where there are words with two letters the same. So green glass door. Um, So there are in that land uh, sheets but no blankets, books but no words, and uh, uh, riddles but no answers. Well, it works out that I'm not the only one that enjoys a good riddle. It seems that Jesus, as we see him in John's Gospel, seems to often speak in ways that have something of the nature of riddles. And why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus speak to his followers when they can't actually immediately get what he's saying? If you think about it, I think what he's trying to do is actually to get them to think. That's what riddles do. They force us to try and struggle with an idea and to land on that idea, get some sense of what it means. Uh, God created our brains and he wants us to use them. But also, sometimes Jesus is talking about things that the disciples haven't yet experienced. Uh, 
and they can't get their heads around. Even when he speaks quite plainly, um, I'll be handed over and crucified and then on the third day be raised again. He said that a number of times, but actually the disciples never got it. And so sometimes Jesus is speaking in riddles so that when they do get it, it kind of will fall into place and stick in their minds. Well, in John's Gospel, um, in chapter 16, verse 16, he uses a riddle like this. A little while and you'll no longer see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. And uh, most riddles have one answer. But actually this riddle uh, could have a number of different answers. What is Jesus talking about? Well, one of the things that uh, people, when they read this and reflect on it, they say, well, Jesus is talking about his death. And I think that's accurate. In a little while you won't see me. He'll be buried in a, in a tomb. And then you'll see me. Yeah. Jesus' death and resurrection. But actually Jesus is also looking beyond um, his death and resurrection. In a little while you won't see me. Actually he's going to ascend to the Father. He will no longer be physically present with them. For 40 days he speaks with his friends. He appears to them and demonstrates to the fa them the fact that he is alive. And then you'll see me again. Actually, one way that the disciples see Jesus again is actually when the Spirit comes. Jesus promised this gift from the Father, the gift of his ongoing presence and power. This is the reason that to stay in Jerusalem. This is the, uh, the way that they're going to be enabled to do the work that God is calling them to do, to take the message of the gospel, not only in their own locality in Jerusalem and all Judea, but beyond to Samaria to the ends of the earth. We're the fruit of that promise. But also, I think Jesus, when he says, in a little while you won't see me and then you will see me, is also thinking about the ultimate end of uh, his return. Jesus promises that he is going to go away, but he will come back. And when he returns, he will be acknowledged by all as Lord. And before him, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. The riddle that Jesus has, has, I think, those three dimensions. Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus ascending to the Father and sending the Spirit Jesus ascending from their sight, the cloud covers him, and then he will return. We talk 
about Jesus going up into heaven and in fact uh, that idea of the ascension of Jesus is underplayed in most churches. Um, we don't actually talk about it or think about it a great deal. And one of the reasons for this is actually it doesn't have its own special Sunday. Um, Good Friday, Easter Day, that's a big day. So we think a fair bit about the resurrection of Jesus. Christmas Day, that's a big day. It's, uh, a lot of other things associated with it. We think about it, so we think about the birth of Jesus. But because uh, Jesus ascended to heaven 40 days after he rose, if you do the mathematics, that actually means that for this year, Easter, on last Thursday would have been 40 days. So the ascension of Jesus doesn't have its own Sunday. Um, next Sunday, we're actually going to have a special Sunday where we think about the gift of the Spirit, the day of Pentecost. It's got its own Sunday, and so we tend to, uh, in the life of the church, speak a little bit more about the coming of the Spirit, like the birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the ascension of Jesus today because I think it is a really important thing and has a great deal of significance for us. Some of the things that I would like to draw your attention to is that the ascension actually is joining the link that the second person of the Trinity who came and became a human being returns to his rightful place and authority and glory. Jesus goes to the Father and what he gave up when he became a human being, let me be very clear, he didn't give up his divinity, but he did give up the power and the demonstration of his divinity. What Jesus did when he became a human being was he actually became like you and me in all things except we get it wrong and he never did. Jesus actually lived his life by faith. And Jesus did what he needed to do by the power of the Spirit. We'll have a look at that, but I don't know if you noticed, but even the risen Jesus speaks to the apostles and teaches them through the Holy Spirit. Now that's really interesting that the second person of the Trinity is utterly dependent on God and his Spirit in his earthly ministry. So the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, returns to his rightful power, position, authority and glory. But God is not the same. God is not the same because God became a human being. Whoa. Get your head around that. God so loved us, so loved his creation, so loved humanity, so loved every person that he was willing to come into our world 
as one of us. And when his earthly life ends, he dies and rises again and ascends to the Father. He doesn't take off his humanity like an old coat and say, I'm done with that. He remains fully God, fully human. Hold on to that. God loves us enough to become one of us and to be forever changed. Humanity is incorporated into divinity. In the Bible, the ascension of Jesus is sometimes portrayed as the time when Jesus takes his own sacrificial death and presents it to the Father. Uh, we see that in the letter or the book of Hebrews. Jesus is shown to be the great high priest who doesn't enter the presence of God through the sacrifice of uh, sheep and bulls, but actually through his own sacrifice. And as a great high priest, he brings that sacrifice for our forgiveness, for our joining into the family of God, for our becoming what God wants us to be in relationship with himself. The ascension is Jesus returning to God and presenting his sacrifice, his complete and sufficient act for our forgiveness. But when he comes, it also, uh, the ascension tells us that Jesus is continually in the presence of God interceding for us. He's praying for us. He's pleading for us. He knows what we're going through because he's been through it. And we're told that as part of his ministry in an ongoing way is that Jesus is praying for us. The other thing that the ascension tells us is that Jesus reigns. It's shown to be in his true authority and glory and that he will return. That's the third interpretation of the riddle, that Jesus will go away, we won't see him, but there is coming the day when we will see him. And we live our lives in the light of that truth. There is a day that is coming when everyone will see Jesus as he really is. We will see him as he truly is. And we will stand before him to give account of the lives that we've lived, but most particularly of the fact of whether we have put our trust in him as our Saviour and Lord. Well, 
Let's have a look at the scriptures that we read, and I'm going to pull out a few verses to underline these truths and uh, to look at things that particularly point to the ascension of Jesus. Uh, John 16, 16, in a little while you will no longer see me, again a little while you will see me. The disciples don't get it. They say in verse 18, we don't know what he's talking about. Sometimes you feel like that when you read the scriptures or try to understand what uh, God is saying through his word. Uh, don't be too distressed. One of the things God is trying to do is to get us to think, to really think into what that means. I believe this because one of my other aspects of my job is to teach theology, and so of course I would think that, but um, I think it makes sense. God created us. He gives us our brains, and he didn't give them to us that we would never use them. But sometimes we won't know what he's talking about. It'll take a little bit of time to think it through. Verse 20. Truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Uh, that's the next slide. And... Uh, um, we see here this sense of there's going to be a great sadness. There will be a bad Friday. But actually we will come to see that the bad Friday is a good Friday. There will be sorrow. And that sorrow will be turned to joy. Many people who come to faith in Christ come in times of sorrow, in sadness. But as the Lord comes into their life and the Spirit touches them, that sadness has become a door, a door to meet the one who really cares who gets us in a way that maybe others in the world don't really seem to. Sorrow is turned to joy. And certainly the characteristic that we see quite often in the scriptures of people when they meet the risen Jesus is joy, but also when people receive the Spirit there's a joy as well. It's consistent with what Jesus is saying. The next bit of John uh, 16, actually, I'm told, or I'm reliably informed, is not absolutely accurate. It says, when a woman is in labour, she has pain because her time has come, but when she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the suffering. I'm told that maybe that's not entirely true. However, the next bit is absolutely true. That usually there is a great joy when you stare at a child, 
a newborn and you recognize the miracle of the creation of a new life and the awe of being a mother of this child with all its responsibilities. Maybe you might still remember some of the elements of the pain, but again, Jesus is using an imagery, a very female image, to speak about sorrow, pain, giving way to joy. So in the same way, he says, you'll have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy away from you. Sometime later, a follower of Jesus by the name of Paul or Saul is in prison. He's in Philippi. And uh, it's the middle of the night. And what are they doing? Are they whinging about the food they're eating? Are they complaining about being locked up? Well, they'll do a bit of that down the track, but actually they're singing praises to God. And they're worshipping the Lord. And that joy seems to somehow create an earthquake. Maybe there was some prayers that God had been answering as well. But the jailer is touched by the fact that they don't try and escape, even though the prison walls have fallen down. Joy in the midst of sorrow would characterise what we read through the Acts of the Apostles. He goes on to say that until in that day you will not ask me anything, the riddles will be clear. Um, truly I tell you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Now that doesn't mean what I thought it meant when I was a young kid. That is, if I just tack Jesus' name onto my request, like my Father Christmas wish list, that God was duty-bound to obey and do my bidding. Uh, praying in Jesus' name, praying to the Father in Jesus' name, means when we're praying aligned with God's will and purposes. It's not just saying in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers. That's a good thing to do, but it's not just that. It means when we get what God wants and ask him for it, then he will give it to us. He says that until now you've asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. Let me turn to Acts chapter 1, which also speaks about the, uh, the ascension and the resurrection of Jesus. How um, we're told this is the second of a uh, of two-part work, Luke's Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles, they belong together. Um, and he says, I wrote in the first narrative, Theophilus, 
the one who seems to be uh, either a person or it could just mean the one who loves God. So it could be uh, a person that Luke is writing both the Gospel of Luke and Acts to. And what he wrote about was all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. I referred to that a little earlier. Did you hear it? Jesus, the risen Jesus, is actually instructing the apostles through the Holy Spirit. Wow. Jesus was doing what I'm hope I'm able to do today, that by the Spirit's power we take the Word of God and the Spirit applies it in your hearts and minds as well. But Jesus is operating in exactly that way. And it's until the day he was taken up, a reference to the ascension, after he suffered, he presented himself alive to them and uh, gave them many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days, 10, 20, 30, 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus is helping them to understand about God as king. God is in control. They didn't quite get this. They didn't understand. And that's why they ask, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But he tells them, wait for the Father's promise. John baptised with water but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Uh, next week, when I come and speak, we're going to be thinking about the coming of the Spirit, uh, the day of Pentecost and its significance, and we will pray also that God, by his Spirit, will continue to equip us to be God's people in his world. John the Baptist baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to speak about this. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. One of the key focuses of the equipping of the Spirit is for the disciples to actually just tell of what has happened to them, of what they've experienced, what they've seen. They're going to be witnesses. And they're going to be witnesses as the gospel spreads. Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, Caroline Springs, Melbourne, and beyond. And after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight.
And two men clothed in white understand angels, but angels who look like men. And they say, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you've seen him go. Can you see the connection there between the ascension and the return of Christ? The promise that the one that we don't see with our physical eyes now will come again and everyone will see him as he returns in glory. I'm just going to read a passage from uh, Ephesians 1 as we come to the end of this talk today. Um, in Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul tells those who are reading the letter how he prays for them. But Paul actually gets a little distracted in his prayers sometimes and a little carried away in his thoughts. I guess that doesn't happen to you like it happens to me. But the way he gets distracted is actually thinking about what God has done in Christ. And what he talks about here in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 20, he talks about how he's exercising power in Christian people. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead. That's some incredible power. A dead person is made alive and seated him at his right hand in the heavens far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion. Jesus has his rightful place in the presence of the Father with all authority given to him. far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything. Who for? For Jesus? For the Father? Actually, for the church. God exercised this power in raising Jesus from the dead and taking him into the heavens, seating him at the right hand, giving him authority over all for the church. That's a staggering thought. That's how much God values his people who gather as community, as family in Jesus. He goes on to describe the church as his body. The fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. It's not how we see ourselves quite often but 
It's how God sees us. In a little while, you'll see me. In a little, sorry, let me get that the other way around. In a little while, you won't see me, and then you will see me. When the church is truly being the church, Jesus is seen. His spirit at work in the lives of people, transforming them, changing them. Sorrow becomes joy. Weakness becomes witness. Well, Jesus speaks in riddles because he wants us to think. Jesus speaks in riddles because sometimes we can't get our head around all the dimensions of the truth. But we will come to understand. And then we will have no more questions to ask. Well, I've got some suggestions for the way that you can apply these truths in your life. In the coming week, would you take some time to reflect on the ascension and its meaning? We've given it a Sunday because it doesn't usually have one, but it's a great Christian truth that really has so much meaning and we usually don't give it the thought that it deserves. Would you seek the mind of Christ and pray in his name? Not just tacking in Jesus' name on at the end of your prayers, but actually seeking to align your prayers with God's will and purposes. Would you be prepared to receive the empowering that he offers? Will you wait on God, asking him to renew you by his spirit and empower you that in your day and age and in the relationships that you have with others, you might be a faithful witness to the truth of the gospel? And will you wait with joy and hope for the day when Jesus will be revealed in all his glory and power, when he comes as Lord and judge of all. He already is that, but it will be seen. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death and resurrection for his ascension and the promise of the Spirit and the promise that he will return. Help us to reflect on these things in our lives and to pray in Jesus' name that we might become all that he intends us to be, that we might understand that we are the reason for what Jesus has done. That he has been appointed as head over everything for the church, his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way.
This we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.